to address that. Church, I got jokes for days when it comes to this topic. I've been holding them in for years. That's exciting, isn't it? I think it's super exciting. Uh, and I, I want to I let you know, uh, out of all the people I've ever worked with, this new position, this director of discipleship, this is my favorite coworker I've ever had. Um, in a very, very serious note, I want to give a lot of praise to our leadership team. This came from them. This was not me making a press to get my wife paid. Uh, this, was, uh, this was them recognizing giftedness within the church, but also recognizing needs within the church that could not be adequately led or addressed with uh, just me doing it. Um, and it was well beyond what a volunteer could do. So thank you for being a church that trusts these guys. They are worthy of your trust. Uh, they are good, good men. And, uh, and they sought the Lord on this. And uh, I also want to let you know that because, uh, you know, we're, we're married to each other, we've been working together in ministry for all these years, but this is the first time that we've ever formally been on staff together. So the, the structure is set up so that there is an appointed advisory team from within the leadership team that Meg has a direct report to. So she would, that out of that, they appoint people to serve in that capacity to be her direct report or leader. And so obviously we're going to work together, but if she ever, uh, if she needs to address something or uh, and she needs, she needs pastoring outside of what happens in our home, these, these men are going to do that. And the first round of appointed advisory team is Devin Overby and David Clapper. And so be praying for them as they lead her and shepherd her heart. And so be praying for her. And uh, I'm excited. I think that's really, really cool days in the life of the church. Um, and I, I just can't say enough good things about these guys. They really are. They really are godly men. So keep praying for them, though, because Satan does not like their character. <laughs> and uh, and he's, he's going to try to undermine it every turn. Uh, today we're going to be in Romans 12. If you want to turn there, that's where we're going to spend a, a significant amount of our time at the back end. Um, uh, I was informed also today that somebody turned that clock ahead a few minutes, so you dirty dog, whoever that was. <laughs> it's slight, but I see what you're doing. It's slight. Um, Romans 12. Last week we looked at prayer. We looked at, at the, the early church being devoted to prayer. Now, being devoted to prayer means you are devoted to communicating with Jesus regularly. Notice the subjectivity of that statement. Notice that, that you get to define regularly. There's no set standard in Scripture where I can point to and I can say these are the times every day that you must pray. These is, this is how long you must pray and, uh, and all those things. No, it, it is regular communication with God. That's what being devoted to prayer looks like. Prayer is how we communicate with God. And last week we looked at how God communicates to us and He communicates to us through His Word. Through His Word and through the Holy Spirit in us, uh, it, it says that, that the Spirit of the living God illuminates the pages, illuminates the Word so that we see it. I bet if we went around and, and asked questions and you were so bold to speak in front of everybody, there are probably several people in this room that have a story to share about how they were reading the Bible and something jumped off the page at them in a new and fresh way. And it's one of those moments where you think to yourself, has that really been there for like thousands of years? I've read that passage. I don't know how many times. How did I miss that? You know, there's stories that can be shared like that, or, or even just in this room, and for that's timeless. That's God's living and active word. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us that illuminates the page and helps us see it and understand. That's how God of the universe is speaking back to us, is being in His word. So if we are devoted in prayer, that, that is tied and married intrinsically to being devoted to being in the word. Just so you know, those two things, when we say that, those are, those are married intrinsically together. If you divorce those things, it is not a devotion. Do you understand what that means? And the, the thing that kind of is, is frustrating is in our Christianese, we call reading someone else's thoughts on the Bible 
We call that doing our devotions. Doing our devotions. Now, that lingo isn't the problem. The problem is that if the only time we spend any time in what we're calling the Word or in prayer is when somebody else tells us what it says, we're not really communing with God, are we? We're communicating with the author of your devotional book. You're, you're devouring the page of somebody else's perspective. You're not really enjoying the joy and the benefits of the Holy Spirit working in you to jump off the page. You're not enjoying the benefits of reading something confusing and then meeting with a brother or sister in Christ to interact on what it means. Don't rob yourself of that by taking an easy approach. I got in trouble in my last church because I said, if the only time you're spending in the Word is whenever you pull the, our daily bread off the back of the toilet and spend your five or ten minutes every morning looking at that while you're sitting on the commode, then that's not fulfilling amount of time in the Word. There were some, there were some elderly people in the congregation that didn't like that. But there were probably some younger ones didn't like it too, to be fair. But... Uh, I think that we have to reorient ourselves around what the word devotion means. Because the meaning of it being called doing your devotions was so that you were, out of your devotion to Jesus, praying and being in the Word. If that is what you are aching for and moving towards, then by all means, do your devotions. But if it's five-minute checklist to say you got it out of your way, I think you should probably reevaluate your lingo, and I should too. So we want to be a church that's devoted to prayer. So if you remember last week, we handed these out. There are still some left on the table. We have 40 of them for the whole church. That is more than enough for everybody to take one for, per family. So if you weren't here last week and you didn't get a chance to get one, grab one on your way out. And starting tomorrow morning, we're going to do this together. Five things to pray for your church. So you open it. I'll, do, I'll give you a quick thing. Uh, there's a passage of Scripture that we will look at together as a church all week. And that passage will get, will get broken down and dissected into five significant parts. And you will pray that part for the church for the week. For instance, the one I opened up to, what you would be praying for the church is to make known God's glory. Romans 1, 14 through 17. So on Monday, you would, you, would, you would pray this, Father, in our evangelism, help us to feel indebted. I am a debtor. In a quick devotion, and you pray. Now, I'm going to email these out as prompts so that everybody gets them and so that we're all on the same page as what we're doing. But are you, can you even fathom what happens when a whole church rallies to pray Scripture over one another? That's exciting, church. That makes the foundations of hell tremble when the people of God rally in prayer and rally around the Word. So if you've ever heard the lingo of storming the gates of hell, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you give the devil some uh, good, old, good old cold cocks right to the face. And I'm okay talking like that around, about him. You ever want to take your frustration on somebody? Just picture the devil. And every time we as a church devote ourselves to being in the Word and in prayer, we are taking him down a few pegs. We're reminding him that he has no authority over us. We're reminding him that he has no dominion over us. We're reminding him over and over and over again that his words hit us and bounce off because we're protected by the righteousness of God that is poured out on us because of Jesus. So what does it look like whenever a church spends that much time devoted in prayer and being in the Word? I don't know, but we're going to find out, and I'm excited about that. So make sure you grab one of those on your way out. Today we're going to wrap up our What Now series, and we're going to examine this passage in Acts one more time. So I know that you're in Romans 12. Keep a finger in that and turn back to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I make no apology for sounding like a broken record looking at this passage. I think this passage does the church really, really good to, to examine it and look at it often. 
because this is arguably the church at its healthiest moment, its most effective moment. So to reorient ourselves around that is wise, right? So let's look at this one more time. I'm going to read it. I just would like you to follow along. Acts 2 42 through 47. This is after receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. After people, thousands of people came to know Jesus in a very short amount of time, because we're only in Acts 2 here, right? Acts 2 is also where the Pentecost happened. So Acts 2, starting at verse 42, and they, meaning the followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the point of asking what now was to examine the aspects of a healthy church. The church is in this moment, perhaps, like I said, the healthiest church that has ever been. So we should reorient ourselves around this, what they were doing and why they were doing it. So I think it would be good for us to just take a couple minutes and zoom in on this one more time because there's an equation here that we've looked at before here, but I want to look at it again. The first thing is what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. What were they devoted to? What were the followers of Jesus at the onset of this thing called the church? What were they devoted to? While well, we saw they were devoted to sitting under the teaching of God's word. They were devoted to making sure that they got physically together in the same spot and, and for the purpose of fellowship. That means edification and building up and enjoyment. They were devoted to celebrating communion together. They were devoted to meeting together and celebrating communion and also enjoying meals together. And they were devoted to prayer. Now, out of that, out of that came behavioral patterns. Their devotion, what they were devoted to, what poured out of that were natural behavioral changes that happened in the life of these people called the church. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's important for us to look at that, because the signs and wonders that maybe we're not seeing today, well, according to this passage, those things were being done through the apostles. There's a very specific group of, of men that personally witnessed Jesus doing the work of ministry, that were, that were personally called into this by Jesus Himself. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's crazy, right? What does it look like for everyone to be in common, have all things in common? We've talked about this before, but for the sake of just making sure we're all on the same page, what that meant was keeping the main thing the main thing. It didn't mean that they, didn't, that they all came in and said, everybody is going to like this exact same food, and everyone is going to dress this exact same way, and that's called legalism, church. That is crushing to the church, not life-giving. When we make rules ourselves to get everybody like-minded around one thing that's not Jesus, that's called legalism. What they had all things in common on is that they were captivated and filled with the love of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was moving them forward. I don't know what sports teams existed back then, their favorite runner in the Rome Olympics. I don't know, but it probably wasn't the same. They probably didn't all enjoy the exact same food, and they didn't all come from the same religious backgrounds or ethnical backgrounds. You realize there was a festival happening in Jerusalem when thousands of people heard Paul's sermon and came to know Jesus. These people had traveled to Jerusalem from all over the known world to be at the Feast of Pentecost. 
So we have to wrap our minds around the reality that there was a whole smattering of people there. They did not have their everyday stuff in common. This does not say that everybody that gathered as the church will all look the same way or all dress the same way. That's not what it means. It means that they had all things that mattered most in common. All who believed in Jesus were together and had all things in common. All things meaning they kept the main thing, the main thing. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, meaning they were sitting under the teaching of God's word, they were doing that together, and they were breaking bread in their homes, not just celebrating communion, but enjoying meals and practicing hospitality. They received that food with glad and generous hearts, meaning anybody they could find that needed a meal could come in and have a seat. And they praised God, and that is the behavioral patterns that, f- that were flowing out of devotion. So we had and examined what they were devoted to, and then we see their behavioral patterns, crazy stuff, like always, always sitting under the teaching of the apostles, making sure that God's Word was continually in front of them. So they were always sitting under a place where someone was helping them understand what the Word meant. And they were, they were selling their stuff and they were saying, hey, listen, give this to whoever needs it. I don't need it as much as someone else does. And a matter of fact, let's have someone, I, I sold this thing and I have some extra money, so let's have everybody in. I'm going to cook everybody a big meal. And oh, you, I don't know you. Are you hungry? Why don't you come in and eat? That was the vibe of the early church. And they did that with glad and generous hearts. Now, here's what happened that I think is remarkable. They, in verse 47, they were praising God, but then what happens? They had favor with all the people. Now, we could preach a whole sermon right here on this one thing of how the church has so, so far missed the mark on gaining favor with our neighbors. Now, how do we gain favor with our neighbors? By dumbing down the gospel because they're too dumb to understand it unless they come to our church. By getting someone to clean themselves up because, I mean, listen, you can't come to our church like that. You're going to have to really clean yourself up before you come to church with me. By teaching people to obey a whole list of rules. No, they gained favor with the people by being devoted to Jesus. And it just altering how they lived. And the outside world was watching the church and saying, I want to be a part of that. They're having this awesome picnic in the backyard. Why can't I come? Well, you can. Come on. Sweet. And then what? Then what happens? God does something amazing here. God adds to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, again, we could spend the whole rest of our time together just lamenting about how far off we have gotten the rails in the American church in particular on gaining favor with our neighbors and in that letting God add to our numbers day by day those who are being saved. God didn't add to their number day by day those who were attending their churches. God added to their number day by day those who were coming to a saving knowledge of the redemptive work of Jesus. There doesn't seem to be an ounce of animosity here where the apostles are saying like, hey, listen, you used to come and sit, listen to teaching under my tree, and now you're doing it under Peter's tree. What did I do wrong? No, it was just people devoted to Jesus, people devoted to teaching Jesus and equipping with Jesus. It was, it was a consistent pattern of moving things forward for the sake of the gospel. And it changed the way they lived. 
It changed the way they saw the world. It, it changed the way they asked questions. It changed the way they saw their neighbor. Everything changed. And the world took notice. And the world said, I want to be more like those people. I want to have friendships like theirs. I want to eat meals like theirs. I want to practice hospitality like theirs. I want to be more simple like them. I want to, I want to not hold so tightly to my stuff. I want to be able to, to practice hospitality more. I want to be more like those people. What, what makes you tick? How are you doing this? Well, let me tell you. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> Just sit with us for a couple minutes and you'll hear all about it. Matter of fact, if you don't mind, we're just going to pray real quick before we enjoy this meal. We're going to praise Him for His provision in our lives. And we want to make sure that we pray over our sister over here because she's struggling and we were able to, to provide something for her and her family that really they needed. Thanks for being here. It's really cool that you're here. <laughs> That's, it was simple. It wasn't formulaic. It was, this is how we live our lives, and our lives are dictated by the way that God has captivated our hearts, and this is how we live, and we want as many people to know Jesus as possible, and this is how we live, and we live because Jesus has made us new, so therefore, we just want to share that with you. That's, that's as simple as it gets. There's no reason to believe that this can't happen again, church. There's no reason to believe that we're too far off the rails. But our devotion cannot be given to temporal things. I have to ask myself some hard questions. Uh, am I devoted to my kids' schedule? Am I devoted to just having fun? Am I devoted to my hobbies? Am I devoted to making money? Am I devoted to making sure my home is exactly how it looks on the last Magnolia program that I watched? Am I devoted to my kids? Am I devoted to my spouse? Etc., etc., etc. I would say, if you're looking for a starting point to ask where your devotion is poured into, look at where you spend your time and where you spend your money. That'll be a pretty good start. If you're like me and you can tend to say things like, I didn't have any time to get in the Word today, that means my devotion was poured into something else. And I need to figure out what it is. <laughs> and I need to realign my priorities. We cannot have expectations that a half-hearted commitment to Jesus will lead to Him adding to our number day by day those who are being saved. That math just doesn't add up. You see, the church in Acts wasn't the church once a week. They were the church all the time. They were friends. They enjoyed relationships with one another. When they were having meals with their neighbors, they were also having meals with their church friends because there was, there was becoming less and less distinguishment between those two things. Oh, those are my church friends. These are my work friends. These are my family friends. This is my family. We don't introduce them to anyone, right? <laughs> Those lines were becoming more and more blurry in the church. Why? Because God, God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the people I was spending time with that didn't know Jesus were starting to know Jesus. And then they were meeting people who needed to know Jesus, and they were inviting them in too. And before we knew it, God was just doing some amazing work. And there was no beeline back to a pastor or a philosophy or a marketing campaign. or No, it was just Jesus doing His thing because we were just being devoted to Him. Acts 2 was written around the time that uh, there was a militant Pharisee rising through the ranks. Same around, around the same timeline 
a militant Pharisee by the name of Saul, whose sole passion in life was to know the Word of God. History would tell us that there's a pretty good chance no one at the time knew the Word of God better than Saul of Tarsus. He studied it. He memorized it. He knew it. And if you disobeyed it, he was going to let you know about it. And if there was anything that was going to pull attention away from the good work that the devoted Pharisees and high priests of the day had done, he was going to correct it. And this Jesus comes along and disrupts the harmony of a religious system. And then all of a sudden, there are thousands of people doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, going and making disciples. And Saul of Tarsus is really upset about it. Because they shouldn't be following the teachings of Jesus. They should be following the teachings of the Bible. He was like a a King James-only guy. You might not understand that joke, but they're out there. So here's what's happening in the life of the church. Now, if you read through Acts, you're going to read a story of Saul of Tarsus on his way to persecute and kill more Christians. And he was on his way to a town called Damascus. He had heard Christians were there. He had heard some of the apostles were maybe landing in that area and doing some teaching. So he had put together a little militia of guys that were completely approved by the church, not the church, but the the religious system of the day to go and eradicate this problem. Saul was their champion. He was the one knocking on doors, busting through doors, cracking skulls, arresting people, killing people. If you would not renounce the name of Jesus, Saul was going to hunt you down and he was going to make your life either miserable or end. That was his life. And he was good at it. People were terrified of Saul. Christians were hiding from him. Persecution had scattered the church. Most biblical scholars would tell you that God allowed that to happen because they were huddled in Jerusalem teaching and living out this thing called the gospel, and that's all the further it was going. And so persecution is allowed to happen within the church. Followers of Jesus were getting hunted down and and killed. James is the first one. John's brother, and then Andrew, they start to get clipped left and right. Not just by the religious elites of the day, but by Rome. Everything felt, the establishment pillars were being shaken by this person named Jesus. When you don't build your foundations on Jesus and they get shaken, you can either submit to Jesus or get mad at him. If you can't see Jesus enough to get mad at him, you'll get mad at his followers. So that's where Saul's at, on the way to Damascus to persecute, arrest, and kill more Christians. And he, in a way only God can do, sees blinding light and spends three intimate days personally with Jesus, which we had more record of what that looked like. Gets the scales lifted off of his eyes, and the the church, the followers of Jesus, protect him and shelter him because once word gets back to the religious elites that their big top-notch guy just got recruited to the wrong team, they're mad, and now they want to shut Paul up. So I tell you all that to say, we're going to spend some time in Romans 12 to close up this series, and it was written by Paul, Saul of Tarsus. That's who wrote this. And when I read it, and you follow along, I want you to see if how Saul is instructing the church sounds anything familiar to what we just examined the church at its healthiest doing. Romans 12, 3 through 13. See if Saul, who, who hated the church, hated what they were doing in Acts 2, hated it, devoted his life to ending it. 
until he met Jesus. See if how he describes the church should function sounds anything like the church he hated so much in Acts 2. Follow along with me. Romans 12, starting at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality." that sound familiar at all? Does it sound like Paul had a blueprint somewhere of what a healthy church looked like? So I want to zoom in on this because I think the what now, can, what Paul writes to the church in Rome can help us greatly. So I guess you could say that these are my takeaways today. There are six of them. Normally I try to limit it to like three. But Paul got a little wordy here, okay? I can't change that. So there's six things that I think we need to reorient ourselves around. If we're going to take this so what and be a healthy church, I think there's some things that we can take, not just from the Acts 2 passage, but fast forward to a church being planted in the cultural hub. All of culture, fashion and style and philosophy, all of it was pouring out of Rome at that day. Paul always had a vision and a dream to get the church planted in Rome followers of Jesus, the, the mindset of Christ pouring out of where the cultural hub was. Think of it. If where culture is being poured out into society and fashion and philosophical thinking, if we can get the church there, if we can get the gospel to take root there, think of a game changer for the rest of the world. I would say he was successful in that endeavor. They have issues, though. It's a pagan society. They're coming to know Jesus. They're up against a lot. They're trying to wrestle with what once was, with what is, and he's instructing them on what it means to be healthy. So there's a couple things I think we need to look at. Number one, it's all because of grace. It's all because of grace. He starts off by saying, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think. but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He tells them, it's grace that was even given to me to even know who Jesus is. It was grace given to me that I'm even alive and speaking this message. And so it's grace given to you, which means a hierarchical system within the church is absolute foolishness. There's not anyone in this room more important than another person in this room, ever, ever. You could put Franklin Graham up here to preach, and whether he has bodyguards with him or whatever, it wouldn't matter. There is not one person in this room ever who is more important than anyone else in this room. Not in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. We together worship Jesus. We together live this out, and we together allow God to work in and through us so that we can see him add to our numbers day by day those who are being saved, not by us and not into us, by him and into him. So it is by grace that we've even have this moment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. How many times have churches borderline or actually have been brought down by the arrogance of someone thinking they're the most important one in the room? And they take all the wind out of the sails. They take all the energy out of the room. And Paul says that is utter foolishness. It is all by grace. Who do you think you are? 
That's essentially what Paul's asking. Don't do that. That slows down the gospel. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It is all by grace given to you that I can even say this. Have sober judgment with one another. And accept the reality that there are people in our midst that might not have the level of faith that you have right now. Because discipleship is a lifelong process. Which means there is a measure of faith, how Paul words it, assigned to us. And there might be people in this room that have a deep faith with Jesus because they've walked with Him a certain amount of time, have an understanding or whatever. And there's some in this room that might not be at that level. But that does not mean that someone is more important elevated over another. Accept the reality that we're not all at the exact same spot in our journey with Jesus. Be okay with that. But sanctification is a lifelong process, church. If you came in here and thought for a half a second that you're better than anyone else in this room, that deep-rooted, it's in there maybe, that is ungodly. And it slows the church down. There's no one in this room more important than anyone else in this room, ever. Ever. That's the first one. It's all because of grace. If we stay reoriented around that on a regular basis, we'll be less prone to giving over to some kind of foolish hierarchy. Two, it takes all of us. Four through eight is, is a sermon in and of itself, verses four through eight. He talks about all the gifts that are given to the body. He gives specific examples to, that are relevant to the church at the time. But he's, he compares it to a body, a human body. Does the human body, in all of the different parts of it, do they all do the same thing? No, and we're thankful that they don't, right? It takes all of us, and it takes us being confident in who and how God made us. It, the, the flip side of the first part that I said of the hierarchical system, the flip side of that is you could potentially sit there, and even if a hierarchical system doesn't exist, you could let yourself believe that you're not worthy, that you're some kind of outsider on the outside looking into all of this, and you don't belong because you don't have enough. Well, listen, we need to be confident in who and how God made us. Because if one part of the body decides it's not going to function, doesn't that show up? If your big toe decided this morning that it wasn't going to work and it was going to be sore, wouldn't your whole body feel it? If you cracked your finger with a hammer, little tiny tip of your finger, doesn't that affect your whole body? Right? If you get an eyelash in your eye, doesn't that affect your whole body? So why in the world would we let ourselves not be confident who God made us to be and how God made us to serve? I think we should just be okay with submitting to who Jesus made us and how He wants to use us and then just do that joyfully together. Because church, I can't do it without you. And the fact that I get to be here means that you can't do it without me, which means we get to do it together. Right? But if any one of us decides not to believe that at any minute, we do not function healthily. It takes all of us. Three, authenticity matters. Authenticity matters. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. There's a Christian band called uh, Casting Crowns, and they have a song called Stained Glass Master Masquerade. Are we happy plastic people underneath our plastic steeples? He asks. What he means by that is, I'm just going to put on my nice clothes. I'm going to fix myself up best I can. I'm going to walk in the door. I'm going to smile and exchange pleasantries. I'm going to make everyone like me. 
I'm going to be Mr. or Mrs. Popularity. But inside, according to what Jesus would say, I am full of dead man's bones. I have made the outside of the cup ornate, but the inside is disgusting. And it doesn't look anything like Jesus. Authenticity matters, and being fake is what makes the church lose favor with all the people. Do you get that? I think authenticity is one of the most, one of the most important aspects of a healthy church. Meaning, if we saw each other in a public setting, or we saw each other at the Phillies game the other night, and we were all acting berserk together, we wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't be surprised to see this person having this certain beverage or, or this person being in this certain, this certain restaurant because none of it is outside of the character of God. None of it is outside of their character. Right? Authenticity matters. And when we're fake, according to verse 9, we're not abhorring what is evil and we're not holding fast to what is good. So when we say we love one another... What Paul is saying is let that be genuine. Let that be genuine. Number four, the joy of the Lord is infectious. The joy of the Lord is infectious. Verse 10 and 11, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that Paul taps into the competitive spirit of human beings. Make it a competition if you have to. But outdo one another in showing honor. Don't hold back on being a blessing to one another. Don't hold back on that. Actually, outdo one another. Outdo one another on blessing one another. And don't hold back on that. Verse 11 tells us, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Because you're not really serving one another anyway. You're serving the Lord. Number five. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. We can all share stories of how it hasn't been easy at times. And your circumstances this morning might be really hard, or they might be really good, or they might be in between those two extremes. But our circumstances being less than easy at times don't change who God is. And that church is really good news. Our circumstances might be really, really difficult. And I know the stories of some of the people in this room that we've gotten to walk through things together, and it hasn't always been easy. And it definitely hasn't always been rainbows and butterflies. But none of that has ever changed the character of God. None of that has ever changed His love poured out on us. And that church is really good news. The devil can't take that from you. Verse 12 tells us to rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Do you realize where Paul wrote most of his letters from? Anyone? Yeah, he was in prison. He was in prison. So I think he's an authority on being able to tell people that you should rejoice in your hope that you have. I'd also be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. He's saying be devoted to it. Your circumstances, my circumstances, being less than easy at times, don't change who God is. And that church is really, really good news. Number six, this is the last one. You are rich. You are super wealthy in God's grace. You are, you are in the top 
if you want to look at it that way, in God's grace. So share it. Don't hoard it. Share it. And share it often. Number th- or verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek, seek to show hospitality. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something here because I want to make sure we understand the difference. There is a propensity in the church today to say that you can't practice hospitality because you have confused it or it has been confused to you for entertaining. Meaning you can't have people in your home because it's not nice enough. You don't have nice enough furniture. You don't have a nice enough kitchen. You don't have enough matching plates. You don't, your carpet is old and worn out. You can't get rid of that smell. You don't even know what it is. <laughs> Again, coming back to that very beginning, hierarchy in the church is foolishness. Don't get beat down by the expectations that unhealthy people put on you. No, practice hospitality. People are coming to my house today for lunch, and they're going to get pizza from Hatboro on paper plates. Well, yeah, praise the Lord. Everyone should have given a big amen to that one. I really don't care that I bought the cheapest flooring I could when I bought my house and it's separating from the tongue and grooves. I did the trim work, so you can take a good inspection of it and see how awful I am at doing trim work. My couches have stains on them, a lot of stains on them, because I have kids and my kids have friends and their friends are in our house. And some of you have spilled your drinks too. (laughs) I didn't buy a museum. I bought a house and I live in it. My kids live in it. So if you're coming to my house expecting museum quality, you need to lower the bar a little bit. It says that we should contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's not just a meal. That's uh, I overheard this morning that you weren't, you weren't sure what you're doing for lunch. Well, we're going to go get pizza. Why don't you come with us? Oh, I, you, you need a place to stay? I got an extra bed. We'll figure it out. You don't know where you're going to watch the game today? Oh, well, I'm going to watch it. Why don't you come over? Hospitality is easy, church. It is easy. But we overcomplicate it when we compare it and call it entertaining, meaning the house has to be spotless, the right dishes have to be out, the decorations have to be perfect, the smell has to be perfect. Now, I'm not saying that stuff's wrong. It is really good to make people feel comfortable when they come into your home. It's good for people to feel like they can let their hair down and just be themselves. That's showing hospitality. That's a healthy church. You are so, and I am so wealthy in the grace of God. And one of the easiest ways we get to give it away is showing hospitality. A healthy church opens its doors. Palms up. Everybody go like this. That's where all our stuff resides. Our talents, our abilities, our money, our homes, our cars, our toys. All of it. It resides. Palms up. Not like this. Nothing we have is off limits. If it means I can use it to let people see the love of Jesus. Nothing. So we practice hospitality. I want you to see something else about this. Now, Paul is an apostle. And he's saying, one of the the main things he's saying in contributing to the needs of the saints, meaning the, the people who are in Christ, contribute to their needs, make sure that no one does without, and seek Look for opportunities to show hospitality. 
That means if you are a calendar-driven person, there is a color code for your calendar in showing hospitality. You might just have to be scheduling it. Hey, listen, here's the church directory. Here's the people we haven't had in our home. We're going to start knocking off the list and making appointments. Here's the people we haven't gotten to know very well. We're going to get to know them. Here's the neighbors that we've lived next to for X amount of years, and we don't know their first names. By the end of the month, that will change. And a real quick plug. In a couple weeks, in every neighborhood in this area, there will be dozens, if not hundreds of kids that knock on your door and ask you to give them something. So if you're the curmudgeon who leaves your lights off and doesn't give something to the neighborhood when they come to your house, you are missing a genuine opportunity because they're coming to your house one time a year. Your, your neighborhood comes to your house, knocks on your door and says, give me something. So don't give them a Tootsie Roll. I don't have anything against Tootsie Rolls. I say if you can give them Tootsie Rolls, give them 20 Tootsie Rolls. They're super cheap. Be extravagant in what you give your neighborhood. Be known as the go-to place in the neighborhood on Halloween night. What's that? There you go. That doesn't surprise me, Frank. Church, there's a lot here. We live in community. We'll have a better chance of getting this right. If we're devoted to the same things that the church was devoted to, devoted to, we'll have a good chance of getting this right. But there's only one gospel. And this is how a healthy church lives it out. Let's pray before the band comes up. While the band comes up, sorry. God, what an awesome reality we get to live in that we get to be the church, the indwelt people of God, the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in us and doing His work in society through us. What a joy. What an honor. God, what you're doing here, I pray that you would continue to do it. I pray that we would find joy and and satisfaction and excitement in being part of what you want to accomplish here. There is only one gospel. And you have given it to us to share with the world. So Lord, as we, your church, end our time together by standing and singing together, may you be honored and glorified in what you hear, not just here, but what you hear and see when we're outside of this room and still the church. God, thank you for the good news that we get to share. There is only one gospel, and we get to give it away. In your name, amen. Would you stand and sing, please?